See, Joshua chapter 4, this passage is about making sure that God's people go out and fight the mission that God has for them ahead of them with the right kind of confidence in a tough campaign ahead. So what does he do? Well, when they're in between a rock and a hard place, he gives them a couple pile of rocks. And that's what happens. It's deeper than that. But let us pray. Lord, you have called us to be your workers. You have called us to go to share your gospel in our community and in our world, but it is difficult. We pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of you. We pray, Jesus, that you would be exalted and that our faith and our confidence would be rooted in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, to go out into God's mission, we need the right kind of confidence because like the people of Israel, they find themselves in a way in between a rock and a hard place. Think about their location here. They just came across the river of Jordan on dry ground. And now they're, as you see in verse 13, they're on the plains of Jericho. They come to a camp at this place called Gilgal, which is on the eastern border of Jericho. What happens when they cross and the the feet of the priests uh, come out of the river, the river Jordan, it goes all the way back. Verse 18 says, The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks just as before. So now where are they? Well, they've got this big fortified city of Jericho to their west. And they have the raging Jordan River to their east. They are between a rock and a hard place. The rock being the city of Jericho and the hard place being the River Jordan. They can't go back. And so they have a challenge. They face a major obstacle in their mission ahead of them to extend God's kingdom across the land of Canaan. But they have no option for retreat. They can't go back. They can't cross the river again. It's impossible. And here's the question. When they're in this place, between Jericho and the River Jordan, the, con- the question is, where is their confidence going to be? And here are the options. Are they going to have confidence in themselves? Or are they going to find their confidence and faith in God himself? See, this is, biblically, this is the question for Israel, and this is the question for us. Are we going to have confidence in God? Or confidence in ourself. See, in society, the way that uh, we think in society is oftentimes the question is, do you have self-confidence or no confidence? But biblically, the question is put this way. Do we have confidence in God? Or is it self-confidence? And I... It was looking on, on Tuesday night, we have our community group, and Chris Hurl was helping me see this a basic idea. Um, you think about it from a military tactic point. They cross the river, and at this point in time, what makes the most sense to do? You have 
surprisingly, this river is, is, is cut off, and the army and the people are coming through. What do you do at that point? When you've committed all of your troops, you've got the surprise, everybody at the gates of Jericho, they're like, um, they're aghast because these people crossed on the, the river on dry ground. What do you do? You, fall, you go on a full charge. You go. Once you've committed your troops, you've got the surprise attack, you have all the confidence, go attack the city of Jericho right then. But God says, stop. Why? I think it's because he wants them and future generations to remember him and to put their confidence in him, not in themselves. See, in a similar way, we as God's people, as God's church, find ourselves called into the spiritual fight into God's kingdom. God calls us into his mission, and yet we come across spiritual and humanly impossible obstacles. And the temptation for us can be simply to push forward with confidence in ourselves, with our intelligence, our plans, our abilities, rather than confidence in God. But the struggle is that we oftentimes think that self-confidence is actually a good thing. Uh, As DJ Khaled so profoundly put it in a song, he said, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. When I come in the room, the hands go in the air, and they stay there, and they say, yeah. See, the point is, you have confidence. All you do is win. You go in there, and people's hands are going to go up. It's going to go well. But it's not just rappers who tell us that self-confidence is a good thing. Julie Andrews herself. <laughs> in that great musical, The Sound of Music. You know how she does. When she's in that rock in a hard place, she's in a tough spot. She can't go back to the convent. They kicked her out. She's got to go watch these, these bratty children be a nanny of them. And she's scared. So what does she do? She sings a song. And the song goes like this. I have confidence in sunshine. I have confidence in rain. I have confidence spring will come again. Besides what you see, I have confidence in me. I have confidence in confidence alone. I have confidence in confidence alone. Besides what you see, I have confidence in me. You see, we, we so often tend to think when there's a struggle, what you need to do is just find some self-confidence like Julie Andrews or any kind of rapper. <laughs> the thing is that self-confidence is fleeting. Especially when you can't control the outcome and you can't fix the situation. Self-confidence is fleeting. And you see, you can have all the self-confidence in the world, but if we face a mission and we face a situation that is humanly and spiritually impossible, all the self-confidence in the world will not help you. And so this is where we see that for the people of Israel and for us, that self-confidence, their self-confidence, can be a subtle danger in God's mission. I think this is what they face at this particular moment. You see, again, it's obvious earlier in the, in the scriptures when Israel comes into the promised land, they come into the border of the promised land. And what happens? They run away. And when they ran away, it was obvious that they didn't have their confidence in the Lord. 
It's like uh, when I was a little kid and a girl made me cry at the playground and I ran home to mommy. It was obvious that I didn't have the right kind of confidence. But now my wife, Matheson, when I come around the corner and I scare her, what does she do? She puts her fists up. But here's the thing. Whether you run or whether you fight, both are can be a, a fear response and are not necessarily meaning that you just because you fight that you have the confidence in the right place. See, Israel, obviously their confidence was not in the right place when they ran away. But here they can go into the land and they can fight without putting their confidence and their trust and their faith in God. See, that's more subtle. They can't run. They don't want to run. See, they could easily say, we made it across the river. We can surprise them. We have momentum. We have 40,000 soldiers. We can do it. That's what they could have said. See, they could have fight forgetting God just as easily as they ran away earlier forgetting God. And that is the critical question at this point is, in this tough mission before them, will they find their confidence and faith in God or in themselves? And if you fast forward the scripture to Joshua chapter 7, what do we see? We see the next town that they come to. And they have they attack the city of Ai with a self-confidence. Oh, look, it's a small city. We can do it. Just send a few thousand troops. And what happens? With their self-confidence, they get routed. And the outcome is disastrous from their self-confidence. Do we sing this hymn as a prayer? Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but you are mighty. Is that our prayer? See, me, we need to, we have to pray more confidently. Lord, I am weak in what comes before me. But you, Lord, you are strong. And I think the Lord here is saying, taking the time to stop people of God and consider and remember the strength of the Lord. See, we need people who understand the difficulty ahead in the mission that God has for them. And have confidence in God rather than confidence in themselves. The person who has always been an example of this for me has been my dad. See, when I was an infant, uh, he was called to be a missionary in Guatemala. Now, he was just a teacher and he said, I don't want, I can't do that. I can't go to Guatemala. I don't know any Spanish. But he basically said, okay, God, if you say so, I'll trust you. And he went, and he was a great teacher. And the extent of his Spanish was, Yo quiero el Big Mac sin saboya. But he was a great teacher. And then after that, he was called, my dad was called to be an administrator with Wycliffe Bible Translators and do finance. And he's like, I can't do that. I don't know. I don't know anything about finance. He said, but okay, God. If you say so, I trust you, and I'll go and do it. And he did a great job. And then most recently, he said he was asked to be a field coordinator for Bible translation projects in the South Pacific. And they say, oh, and by the way, you need to learn a language called Tok Pisin. 
And my dad says, I can't learn talk pissing. And talk pissing isn't, isn't, a, isn't uh, learning how to you know, potty mouth talk. It's a trade language. But he's like, I can't learn that language. And I don't know how to do this stuff. But he says, Lord, if you say so, I trust you. And I'm going to do it. See, most of my life, I've heard from my dad. I've heard him say, this is way over my head. But God, if you are saying so, I trust you. And I'll do it. This is what Israel needed to be in their posture. And this is the kind of posture that God calls us to have. So the question then is for us, how do we get to the point in our mission where we can say, Lord, this is over my head, but if you say so, I will trust you. Like the people of Israel. And the answer is, put up a pile of, a couple pile of big rocks. You see, Joshua chapter 4, the whole thing is about putting up some rocks, putting up these piles of memorial stones of these rocks. You see in verse 2, if you read with me. Verse 2, he says, The Lord says to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. And then verse 5, Joshua calls the twelve men from the twelve tribes and he says, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And then verse 8, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. Here's the flow of the passage. The Lord tells Joshua, get two piles of stones of 12 stones each. Joshua tells the people, God said, get two piles of stones, uh, 12 stones each. The people go and do it. And they put up these stones at the place of Gilgal and put one in the middle of the Jordan River. These are, for them, memorial signs. So why is the Lord telling them to put up these memorial signs of these stones? Why does he say, put up these stones in Gilgal and put up a pile of stones in the middle of the Jordan River? Why is he telling them? See, the reason, the reason he tells them to put these stones is so that they and future generations would remember his work. They would remember his redemptive work and that their faith in him would be strengthened. Now imagine, for example, you're an Israelite back then, a long time ago, and you're walking down by the River Jordan, or you're walking there, and you have a couple kids with you. And one of your kids looks at the rocks and say, Hey, Dad, what's up with these pile of rocks right here? And then you walk further, Hey, Dad, what, why on earth is there a pile of rocks in the middle of the Jordan River? And you think to yourself, that's a good question. Why are those rocks there? But those rocks, and then you tell your children, those rocks are a sign from the Lord saying, did you put those rocks there? How did those river rocks get there? And how did those rocks get in the middle of the Jordan? Did you do it? No. It was me. 
better yet. How did you get over here into the land anyways? Was this something you did? No. It was my work. You see, this is what the point of the memorial rocks is. God reminding the people of His mighty work. Look at verse 6 and 7. This is what he says. Look at verse 6. That these, sign, that these stones may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, Hey, what do these, stein, what do these stones mean to you? And then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it, the ark, passed over the Jordan... The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a a memorial forever. If you bring up the slide that has the the, um, verse 6. This uh, verse 6, what's going on in here is this uh, Hebrew chiastic parallelism. And what it is saying, what the point of it is, it's making emphasis like a hamburger of the meat that's in the middle of it. So you pay attention to the juicy meat right in the middle of it. So on the outside of this chiasm, you notice it says, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, A. And then in the middle of it, it says, before the Ark of the Covenant passed over, when it, the Ark, passed over, that's when the Jordan River was cut. See, the point is emphasizing the middle. This is the meaning. The middle is that it was when the Lord, the the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord passed through. That when that happened is when... (laughs) That's my daughter. (laughs) That when when the Ark of the Covenant passed through, that's when the water was cut off. That it was the Lord who did it. It wasn't anything about the people. It was the Lord See, the stones were to be a reminder that it is only because of the Lord's presence and His power that the people made it across. The signs are of His work. This is what is re-emphasized again in verse 22 through 24. Look at verse 21 with me. And He said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over on dry dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You see, the point is emphasizing that it was something the Lord did. And these memorial stones are a reminder of what God Himself did, not what the people did. It's of His work. And you see the purpose statement of these memorial stones in verse 24. He says, the purpose statement of these stones is so that you might fear the Lord your God. So when you're walking down the River Jordan, when you see these stones in the middle of the Jordan River, and you look at them, it will remind you, wow, look what God did. So that our 
heart is brought to fear Him and Him alone so that our heart has confidence in Him. This was the point of them. So here's the theological point. If you want to understand a theological point. It's that signs, these signs, and these memorials function to remind us of His powerful redemptive work so that our confidence is in Him. To put it another way, the reason that God gives us signs of His redemption are to strengthen our faith in Him. Signs and memorials function to remind us of His powerful redemption work so that our confidence is in Him. This is what these memorial stones are doing. They're reminding us of His work so that our faith and our confidence is in Him. Why does He do that? I think in some ways it's because He understands our weaknesses. He understands our forgetfulness. He understands we have ADD, like Manuel was talking about last week, that we all are like the dog in Up, in the movie Up, that sees a squirrel and says, Squirrel! Just like Manuel was talking about, I am that way, you are that way. God knows we are that way, and we get our attention put on different things, and we are forgetful. He knows we get distracted and we need our attention brought back to what He has done. And so you know what He does in understanding our weakness. He gives us visible reminders of our invisible redemption because He knows that we are weak. I'll give you one example. Let's say you come to church and you feel dirty because of your sin. You feel shameful because of your shit, your sin. Next time when we have a baptism, look at that baptism and see the symbolism of how that person has been washed clean. The symbolism of the washing on how Christ, how He has washed you clean by His blood once for all. Look at that baptism and see what that has meant. When we come to the table... And you're struggling with this sin and you feel it. Not to get absorbed by that, but to come back and look at look what Jesus has done for you by giving His body and His blood, by dying on the cross for your sins. And He says, this is my blood given for you for the remission, for the forgiveness of all of your sins. See, when we are forgetful and we want to look at our sin, we have been given these signs so that our focus may be back on what God has done to redeem us. See, the whole point of memorial signs is to remind us of His work. See, we need to put our confidence, we need to be reminded to put our confidence in the right place, which is God Himself. Imagine if the Israelite kids were walking around and they asked their parents, so, what do these stones mean? And they said... Well, we came across the Jordan River. We walked across on the dry ground. We had such strong abilities. See, faith is important. was important for them. But the emphasis is oriented on what God has done for them in Him getting them across. 
That's why memorial signs, these signs, they remind us of what He has done to strengthen our faith in Him. And these two excellent signs then that we have as Christians for us, these visible signs of what He has done are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are our reliable signs that remind us of His redemptive work so that our confidence and so that our faith is in Him. And yet it is interesting because I, I, I see so many people, so many Christians today, that we're looking in all kinds of weird and wonky places for signs from God. I feel sad and pity for people who are looking all kinds of weird places for signs from God that He has not reliably given them signs from. For example, let's say you're, you're a couple in college and you're dating. And you go up to the mountains. And it's a beautiful night. And you're standing there in front of the stars. And the guy is thinking in his heart, Lord, give me a sign that this is the right one. And the girl maybe is saying, Lord, give me a sign that I can get out of this relationship. <laughs> and they're standing up there, and their shooting star flies by. And they say, thank you, Lord, for my sign. One person says, I got a sign from God that we were supposed to get married. The other one says, I had a sign that we were not. You see, shooting stars and things like that, they don't mean anything. Other than that there's, you know, space rocks that are burning up. (laughs) They're not reliable. Those are not reliable signs. Because they don't point us back to what Christ has done for us. Let's say that you're in a difficult marriage. That it's in a very difficult part, part with your spouse. Your spouse is selfish is mean to you, they're ugly, uh, they're not loving, they don't care about you very much, and you're driving in the car, and you say, God, this is hard. I need a sign. Show me what to do. And you turn the radio on. You're flipping through the radio stations, and you flip to the country station, and you hear a song from Carrie Underwood, and you say, Carrie Underwood's a Christian. And the song goes, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats, I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, I slapped all in all four tires, maybe next time I'll think before it cheats. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for my sign. And if you went to Munwell for marital counseling after that, he would say, I don't think that that was a sign from the Lord. You see, we look to these these other places for signs where God has not reliably given us a sign. And here's the point. As Christians, we have been given the Holy Spirit of God. We have been given wisdom. And so we're, we're looking for signs. We don't need to be told what to do. You know what to do. We need to be reminded of the reliable signs of what God has already done for you so that we have confidence in Him to do what we know we already need to do in Christ's strength. This is why God has given us two reliable signs that remind us of His redemptive work so that we have faith in Him and strength to do what we need to do. And that's what these memorial signs of Joshua were all about. 
So how do we apply this? Well, in some ways, we have each other as God's people. And one of the applications that I think comes out of this passage is that we must teach these signs. We must teach God's redemptive work, His grace, to the next generation. See, as a people, we are supposed to take part in passing on the faith to our children and to uh, our spiritual children, to these people. Because they have to be told. This is, this is part of it. He's, when God tells Joshua and Joshua tells the people, when the children ask you, you must tell them. And there's a content that you need to tell them. There is a power in the multiplicity of, of voices telling the next generation of God's redemptive work of His grace for us. But I think there's also a particular emphasis here upon parents, and even especially perhaps on fathers. She says here, in verse 21, when your children ask their fathers in times to come. See, some people you could say it means ancestors, and that is true. But the word for fathers is Av, from which we get the name Abraham, Abraham, the father of many nations. I was reading in the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary, and it says this, when these words, fathers, here, are plural and in the context of uh, dealing with the past. The term usually refers specifically to male ancestors or forefathers. See, in some ways, this passage is saying, yes, parents, yes, the church of God, we must teach the meaning of these signs of God's work. We must teach the gospel. But fathers, we have a specific responsibility to pass on the the faith, to pass on the gospel to our children. We have, as fathers, a special responsibility to teach the gospel to our children. That's what it means to be a spiritual father, a spiritual leader. See, we must teach the gospel to the next generation. And we must teach them the meaning of these signs. See, these, ma- these memorial stones that they were given, there was, they were not magical stones that just gave people confidence. They had to be explained. They had to be explained. And the signs that God has given us, besides the Word of God, the signs of the Lord's Supper and baptism, they even lend themselves to be explained to our children. For example, last week, we took the Lord's Supper, we had communion. And... My wife was in the back trying to carry two, two children, and my daughter's crazy toddler over there, trying to be held. And she saw that, my, that Matheson got a cracker. And so she says, I have it. And then she saw the juice, and she says, I have juice. I want juice. See, right there is a teaching. Even there with a two-year-old. It's a tiny little teaching opportunity. And so Matson said, when our daughter says, I have juice, Mommy. Matson said to her, Well, Papi Marie, this juice represents Jesus' blood, which forgives your sin. And all Papi Marie heard is blood. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Not right now. But she said, Papi Marie, one day, 
when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can have this too. And oh, I hope that that is true of our children, that as we explain them the meaning of these signs, that they come to believe it. These are powerful opportunities for us to share the gospel with our children and with the next generation. A community group on Tuesday, Mitzel asked a really important question about this. She said, but what if you keep on telling the next generation? What if you keep on telling them? And they say, I miss, come on. And I said, you're a middle school teacher, aren't you? She said, yeah. And you middle school teachers know that nobody listens. They don't listen. But that is the question that we have. That is my question. That is our question. What if we keep telling our children the meaning of these signs? What if we keep on telling our children of God's great redemptive work? And they keep on not believing. See, we have a responsibility to teach the truth, but we cannot make our children believe these truths. We cannot do it. But we hope and we want them to. For verse 14, it says, On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. You see, all the people heard that Joshua spoke for the Lord, and he was exalted in the people's sight, all of them. You see, Jesus is our great Joshua. Jesus' name, it means Joshua. Jesus is the exalted King. Jesus is the one who speaks on behalf of God the Father. Jesus is the one who speaks the truth of the gospel to us. He's the one that makes it living and real in our hearts and in our children's hearts. You see, we have Jesus who is the exalted intercessor for us, who speaks to God on our behalf, and who speaks the very words of God the Father to our hearts, and even can do it to our children. And the Lord says, see Jesus. Jesus says, look at what I have done. And he can give that work of faith into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our exalted intercessor and king. He teaches us the meaning of these signs of his redemptive work. He works faith in us and he strengthens us in our faith. We and our children because of Jesus, can see him exalted at the right hand of God the Father, having forgiven all of our sins. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we are following you in a world that is difficult, a barren land even. We say that we are weak, but you are mighty. We are prone to forget what you have done by giving us your son and raising him up from the grave and seating him on the right hand of your of you, Lord, where he is exalted. Strengthen our faith as we see you, Lord Jesus as we journey 
We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.